What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. In the last few episodes, we have discussed the events that led to the fear that a satanic cult conspiracy was running rampant in America. From the foundation of the Church of Satan in 1966, to the devil and demon-related horror of the movies of the 1970s. Also, the events that allegedly took place in a number of preschools in the 1980s and the near-hysterical reaction from social services and scared parents. All fuelled by books such as Michelle Remembers and Satan's Underground, as well as scaremongering news media. The hysteria resulted in a number of people spending time in prison for crimes that most likely, or we actually know, never happened. While some ridiculous claims were made during the preschool trials, they were still based in a fear of physical harm coming to young, vulnerable children. Which I can understand. In this episode, we're going to look at the more extreme claims that were made regarding common pop culture of the 1980s. How it was being linked to demonic possession, cult initiations, and allowed the devil into your home. Strap in, folks. It's going to get weird. The fantasy genre has hit the mainstream over the last couple of decades with a wallop. The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies got people talking about elves, dwarves and magic. More recently, Game of Thrones had people discussing and debating dragons and mythical families. However, if you said you played Dungeons and Dragons or another role-playing game such as Warhammer, you would be most likely sneered at or called a nerd. I find this baffling as there are a wealth of fantasy-based console games that makes millions and thousands of people play them. Introduce a role-playing element, and for some reason, it seems to cross some line that many struggle with. I played several role-playing games when I was younger, but have moved away from it in the last couple of decades to progress and explore other interests. It is something that I will go back and look at and explore on a future episode. Why am I talking about role-playing games? Well, in the 1980s, role-playing games, in particular Dungeons and Dragons, became the focus of fear, paranoia and hatred for a very vocal portion of society that linked these games with the growing satanic fear. Over a period of time, several key individuals targeted the game as a source of evil and used it to start scooping in other children's pop culture favourites for an absolute drubbing. Before we get into this, let's take a step back. In 1971, a medieval war role-playing game, Chainmail, was released. The rulebook was written by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin. 
The game was popular, but the two creators saw an opportunity to expand the scope of the game to include fantasy elements. Gygax and Perrin took the rulebook and created a new version that became Dungeons and Dragons, or D&D. They took the prototype to the creators of Chainmail, but they were not interested. The two guys took it to a number of other game and toy companies, but all declined to publish the game. Trusting that they had a solid product, Gygax and Perrin set up their own business, Tactical Studies Rules Inc., or TSR, in 1973. This was literally set up in a garage and 1,000 copies of the rules were created for sale in 1974. The first run of the rulebook sold out in a flash. By 1981, TSR had grown from a single garage operation to a multinational company with a base in the UK and making millions of dollars of profit. The primary customers for the games were college students. In the mid-70s, gaming groups were popping up all over the country and were starting to make contact through mailing groups. At first, much of this went unnoticed. However, as the game grew in popularity, it started to come to the attention of certain groups and individuals, especially when gaming groups started to appear in high schools. The first of the groups to start taking an interest in the early 1980s was our old friends, the New Christian Right and their leader, evangelist, Jerry Falwell. Based on the content of the game, I could understand why it would wrinkle Falwell's feathers. However, it became one of his primary targets because of the two individuals, Gary North and William Schnobelin. Both are still active in promoting anti-D&D rhetoric. However, the intent has changed over the years. In the early 80s, the below quote from Gary North became a rallying call for concerned Christians. Without any doubt in my mind, after years of studying the history of occultism, after having researched a book on the topic, and after having consulted with scholars in the field of historical research, I can say with confidence these games are the most effective, most magnificently packaged, most profitably marketed, most thoroughly researched introduction to the occult in man's recent history, period. This is no game. The topic North mentions is his 1976 book, Non Dare Call It Witchcraft, a book in which North not only categorises occultism in the same group as liberalism and humanism, but also makes it clear he believes magic is real. Schnobelin is no better. While North claimed to have researched the game, Schnobelin claimed to have been part of its creation in an occult capacity. He's quoted as saying, Our covendom was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just a short drive away from the world headquarters of TSR, the company which makes Dungeons and Dragons in Geneva. In the late 1930s, a couple of the game writers actually came to see my wife and I as prominent sorcerers in the community. They wanted to make certain the rituals were authentic. For the most part, they are. Schnobelin has stated on numerous occasions that he was involved in the dark arts in different ways, from the Church of Satan to what he calls hardcore Satanism. He builds on the notion that the game is based on different versions of anti-Christian rituals. 
The irony of this should be highlighted at this point. Gygax and Perrin have both stated that the fundamentals of D&D are predominantly based on the structure of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books, including the wider world building of The Hobbit and The Silmarillion, with additional flair from C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. These books form a solid foundation for modern fantasy, and both are created on a not-too-well-hidden Christian ideology. In fact, an anti-D&D booklet published later in the 80s identifies Tolkien's books as more acceptable, morally conscious fantasy that Christians should read if they need to read any fantasy at all. It's as if they never actually did any of their research. The concern for me at this point is this notion of fantasy versus reality. We are about to discuss two real-life incidents that escalated the fear of the impact of the game. However, before these, evangelical belief and concern is based on the notion that magic, witchcraft and demons are real. Not just real, but accessible to everyone. How was this ever taken seriously? Gygax and Perrin made it clear that this was just a game based on fantasy literature and past role-playing games. A hobby. It provides a worrying view for me that Falwell, North and Schnobelin were gaining a national platform, supported by then-President Ronald Reagan. They're allowed to talk such utter nonsense. The first real-world event that stoked the fire of paranoia came in 1979, when 16-year-old student James Dallas Egbert went missing for several weeks. Egbert was an exceptional student and had progressed to college at 16 years old. While there, he was introduced to D&D. On August 15, 1979, he disappeared. While the police investigated and searched for him, they came up short. Worried, his parents hired private detective William Deere. The media were also taking an interest in the case and were looking for a hook to rest the case on. Something simple to focus on and blame for Egbert's disappearance. Deer inadvertently provided this when he shared his theory that his involvement in D&D gaming groups may have pushed him into a fantasy world and gone into the steam tunnels below the college. The media jumped all over this and started to make their own theories and conjecture none of it founded in the results of the actual investigation. While the media were peddling this nonsense, the new Christian right weren't far behind, holding this up as evidence that vulnerable people were at risk from this game. Egbert was found several weeks after his disappearance on a bus leaving town and returned to his family. Unfortunately, this didn't help Egbert, who continued to be troubled and within 12 months of being returned, he had killed himself with a gun. As is always the case, the media and the evangelical groups latched onto this and continued to blame D&D as the cause. The media focusing on the struggle of a vulnerable person being exacerbated by a fantasy game blurring the line between reality and game. Christian groups came in two flavours at this point. There were those that followed the news media track, however... There were those that were pushing a more supernatural notion, suggesting that demonic suggestion was what pushed him to both run away and commit suicide. 
Four years after Egbert's suicide, private detective William Deere released a book called The Dungeon Master, fully explaining the investigation. In the book, he quickly debunks the D&D theory and myth, explaining that Egbert was a troubled youth in over his head at college. Deere explains that Egbert suffered mental health issues from parental and self-imposed performance pressures, loneliness from not being able to engage fully in college life, which lead to untreated depression and a reliance on drugs. It is also suggested that Egbert was further confused and unable to process his possible homosexuality. All of these issues paint a picture of a troubled, vulnerable youth that was looking for help and support, not a kid trapped in a fantasy land. A final note, the book was released four years after Egbert's death because of a promise Deer made to Egbert's brother. It seems that it was preferable for James Dallas Egbert to have been influenced by a game rather than be a troubled young man trying to process his place in the world. With little support. An interesting choice. And a sign of the times. This event could have, and should have, been no more than a blip on the overall pop culture of the period. However, not only was the story a grabber for the news media, it tickled the creative fancy of writer Rona Jaffe. Jaffe took these base details of the events and wrote a novel called Mazes and Monsters. The novel changes names and moves events around, but the connection to the real events can be clearly detected. The key part is that the novel doesn't include any supernatural elements, but focuses in on the vulnerability and mental state of the character based on Egbert. It's playing the game that pushes him over the edge, providing a fantasy world that was a better option. The novel was a minor success and was quickly picked up by American channel CBS to be made into a TV movie of the same name that starred a young up-and-coming actor, Tom Hanks. This event and the development of the fictional story around it escalated the place of D&D in the public eye. To some, it made the game oddly appealing and TSR continued to do well. For the most, however, it made them nervous of the game and the impact it could have on young people. It's at this point the activity against the game splits into two camps, which do have several elements and people that sit in both. The first is actually the smaller. These people were concerned that the game was a distraction from reality for vulnerable youngsters. Those that may get too involved in the game as a way of not engaging in real-world issues. While there is some legitimacy to these concerns, the solutions offered is where this group loses points. Instead of considering that more support should be given to these kids and young adults, they simply wanted the game removed. All screaming, who will think of the children? Without actually thinking about the children. The other group was more vocal and often got the more lurid attention in the media. These people actually believed that the game was evil, imbued with a demonic force or some form of witchcraft, that it would actually brainwash kids into committing self-harm or other evil acts. Those that simply saw the game as the enemy would use these arguments and resources of either camp to get what they wanted in any given moment. In 1980, a high school in Utah introduced additional extracurricular activities for its gifted students. These included a D&D 
gaming group. At first, no one cared. Then, a couple of parents of kids not in the groups attending the activities raised concerns. A vote was taken, a meeting mostly attended by teachers and parents of the kids involved in the activities. The motion was carried that the gaming could continue. Not pleased with the outcome, a second meeting was forced on the school that was attended by over 300 people. At the meeting, several guest attendees were given the opportunity to articulate the concerns. One of these guests was Norman Spring, who stated that the text used in the rule book was actual demonic text and could be used to summon demons. He then went on to name a series of demons, none of which are actually included in the D&D rulebook. The school stood its ground for a short time, but eventually the district superintendent stepped in and closed the gaming group down. A victory for the crazies, one that set an unnerving precedent that was taking hold for those promoting the evils of the game. Misquoting passages and rules from different versions of the rulebook and comparing them to quotes also often taken out of context from the Bible. In the more extreme, but more common than should be acceptable in the 20th century, cases, these quotes were being used to prove that Dungeons and Dragons rulebook was an actual handbook or grimoire for summoning demons and conducting witchcraft. People were stating, without a tongue anywhere near their cheek, that magic and demons were real and could be summoned with ease. This was the 1980s, not the 1480s. This should have been laughed out of existence. This should have been laughed out of existence, but was to take a further hold with a second tragic suicide. In June 1982, high school student Irving Pulling killed himself with a gunshot to the chest. His mother, Patricia Pulling, claimed that the suicide was instigated by her son's involvement in a gaming group held at the boys' school. Soon after his death, she filed a wrongful death suit against the school and the headmaster. Initially, she claimed that the game pushed her son over the edge, acknowledging his social awkwardness. The first suit failed. However, this was quickly followed by new claims. Now, Pulling was stating that her son was well-adjusted and loving and that a curse had been put on him during a game of D&D, which had driven him to suicide. This led to a further suit against TSR. The extent of Irving's issues were found by an investigator, who highlighted that the boy had been found to have tortured and killed several local pets. This was fervently denied by Patricia Pulling, and to structure her claim against D&D, she formed the organisation Bothered by Dungeons and Dragons, better known as B.A.D.D. Bad, in 1983. The backbone of Bad's issues against the game was that it was indeed a demonic tool and its evil could affect those playing it. She is quoted as saying that D&D was a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination and other teachings. That's one hell of a night out. So within two years, you had two teenagers whose suicide had been linked to D&D. 
This is a tragedy, but statistically not significant enough to raise concern about the game. In my opinion, as with the satanic ritual abuse cases, we just have further evidence of cases of vulnerable individuals that have suffered real-world issues, but have been sidestepped for a more dramatic cause, failing to address something that could have been helped and could have prevented these tragedies. Initially, BAD was a local action group, but due to the suicide of her son, Patricia and BAD gained more and more national exposure. At first, this was through news stories about her son's suicide. However, this quickly transitioned to the message of BAD. This was through several high-profile Christian papers and magazines. As her profile grew, she became associated with other action groups. In 1984, she became a director of the National Coalition of TV Violence. She and BAD was given validation in 1985 when she was the focus of an episode of 60 Minutes on which Gary Gygax and TSR were openly accused of being a cause of a series of suicides. In the episode, a psychologist who has worked with BAD estimated that D&D had been linked to close to 30 suicides since 1979. A complete fabrication that is never questioned on the programme. Of course, Patricia and Bad are painted as the underdog, trying to highlight a terrifying risk to your children. It's just as much trash TV as the satanic ritual abuse episode of Geraldo Rivera, but it struck a chord with the public. If it had just been the media reporting the impact, it would have been minimal and could have been ignored. However, pulling got her foot in the door with law enforcement. She gained a private investigator licence and started to act as a consultant to police departments and as a jury expert for trials. For law enforcement agencies, she started running seminars and lectures on the impacts of RPGs and identifying satanic symptoms and evidence at crime scenes. These filled police forces with nonsense information that could be used if needed. For many officers, this information was taken with a pinch of salt. But there were the hardcore Christian officers that literally took it as gospel and made it their mission to root out satanic crime in whatever part of the country they patrolled. These were sometimes referred to as cult cops, which I think has a wonderful dual connotation, as both rooting out satanic cults and being part of a deluded evangelical Christian cult. These cult cops would often bring forward cases of supposed satanic ritual abuse, demonic influence and cult activity. In most cases, cooler heads prevailed and the accused were either let go or arrested for actual crimes for which they could be prosecuted. As a jury expert, Pulling spouted all kinds of nonsense about role-playing games, the rules and how they related to ancient satanic text, influenced people and how they were linked to anecdotes of people actually summoning demons. This woman was acting as a mouthpiece for extreme religious beliefs and misinformed understanding and affecting the judicial system. Bad had a number of allies in other fields, but one that crossed over with the next area we will be covering was preacher Philip Phillips. We'll talk about his book, Turmoil in the Toy Box, shortly, but we need to understand his position on Dungeons and Dragons. Like Shobelin, Phillips believed that magic and demons were real. He stated on several occasions that he had received letters 
from concerned parents who had thrown D&D pieces into the fire, only to hear them scream in pain and curse being beaten. Pulling gained further attention when she co-authored a book in 1989 with Kathy Cawthorn called The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan? In the book, she not only doubles down on her statements of Satanism and cultism in RPGs, she expands on another bizarre and massively misinformed notion. H.P. Lovecraft created a fictional ancient book that appears in several of his mythos stories. The Necronomicon, a book of evil magic purportedly written by Arabian wizard Abdul al-Hazred that was stored in the dark parts of the library of the fictional Arkham Miskatonic University. An actualised version of the Necronomicon was released in 1977, written by an anonymous author. It contained a number of elements, but was no more than a fun tie-in to the Lovecraft world. Pulling and Cawthorn thought otherwise. They believed that this was an actual grimoire, an occult text, and linked its release with the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. They went as far as to recommend that police should question suspects of occult crimes if they are aware of and have read the Necronomicon at any point. This is just further proof that during this period these action groups could not separate reality from fiction. The final thing I want to mention regarding D&D is the cartoon that was released in 1983. Obviously this became a target of the action groups as well, but it also acted as a gateway to start a focus on other areas of pop culture. It had always been the fantasy elements that had caused so much issue. Therefore, the next fantasy thing to be targeted was He-Man. Many of the same criticisms and warnings were applied, the demonstrations of magic and occultism etc. He-Man however had additional issues. His costume for one was a bone of contention, or should I say lack of a costume. This was compounded by his statement that they were the masters of the universe and wielded his power sword. In the eyes of the Christian right, and our friend preacher, Philip Phillips, only God is the master of the universe, and to wield a power sword was an indication of occult violence. He-Man was soon lumped in with G.I. Joe, Transformers, She-Ra, Mask, My Little Pony and Care Bears. I will acknowledge that each of these cartoons were created as a way of selling the toys. I understand that they were a cheap marketing ploy, and for the most part the cartoons weren't all that good. Regardless, I still love Generation 1 Transformers, and He-Man was an animated moral compass for many kids in the 80s. The argument made by Phillips in his book, Turmoil in the Toy Box, and another action group, Action for Children's TV, led by Peggy Sharon, was that they were anti-Christian and either promoted war and violence, Mask and G.I. Joe, contained magic and occultism ideas, He-Man, She-Ra, My Little Pony, or had other demonic ideas, such as machines with sentience and souls, Transformers. It could be argued that these animated morality tales are no different from the fairy tales told for generations. Well, they have that covered. Phillips countered with the idea that fairy tales, even with moments of horror, are told in a position of security between a child and guardian. The relationship is able to dispel any fear and focus on the positive parts of the story, 
while cartoons are watched in isolation, often in the dark. Therefore, the childish mind is not able to separate good from bad or reality from fiction. As we have already established, a large portion of these action and religious groups believe that magic, demons and Satan are real and having an impact on the world. I'd be more concerned with them than some imaginative kids. These attacks continued throughout the 80s, but barely made an impact on the sales of the toys. In fact, while some groups boycotted the toys and cartoons, others actively bought them in order to destroy them. I assume they thought they were making a statement. Unfortunately for them, the main statement they were making to the toy manufacturers, Mattel and Hasbro, was that the toys were selling and they were making money. <laughs> All these campaigns started to fall to pieces by the early 90s due to three key factors. The first was an essay written in 1989 in response to Pulling's The Devil's Web and Philip's Turmoil in the Toy Box by sci-fi author and RPG developer Michael Stapole, called The Pulling Report. In this document, he investigated the statements made by Pulling and others linked with BAD during the 80s, how they quoted fictional texts such as Mazes and Monsters as factual, how the seminars they were given utilised unproven and often debunked anecdotal case studies to support their points. Moreover, these seminars cost between $100 and $300 a seat. As the seminars were mostly attended by police officers, taxpayers' money was being spent on the nonsense that was being spouted and giving the cult cops justification to continue their crusades. This was followed in 1990 by a further study called Pursuit of Satan by former police officer Robert Hicks. Hicks investigated Pulling's alleged credentials and qualifications, proving that they were overstated, worthless, or in some cases, simply fabricated. By 1990, Pulling and her cronies were starting to lose ground and credibility. This was further solidified in 1991 when the American Association of Suicidology, the US Centers for Disease Control, and Health and Welfare Canada all concluded that there was no causal link between fantasy gaming and suicide. Of course, a natural occurrence that eventually put paid to the majority of these ridiculous statements and arguments was the fact that D&D and other role-playing games continued to be played. Moreover, technology has improved and console games have introduced new games and ways of playing, all with an occult theme, yet the rate of related suicides did not increase. We were not overrun by demons, and Satan does not astride the world. More importantly, those people that played RPGs in the early years are now in successful positions of power, and furthering the growth of imagination and the benefits of fantasy. In doing these episodes on the satanic panic of the 1980s, I have learned one key thing. When people are insecure in their beliefs, or feel that their belief system is under threat, provide them with a simple scapegoat and they will not only rally on it, but create more and more stories to back up the idea that they are in the right and defending the wider world. I wonder how generations in the future will look back at the times we are living in now. As a final note, I use several sources when making these last few podcasts, but the one I want to call out is the collection of essays Satanic Panic, 
Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s, edited by Keir La Janice and Paul Corrup from Fab Press. It's a fantastic collection and covers so much more than I have covered in these episodes. I may come back to this subject and cover the impact of heavy metal music and horror movies. This and all the books I have quoted from, Michelle Remembers, uh, Satan's Underground and Turmoil, Turmoil in the Toy Box are all readily available on Amazon or eBay. If you would like to discuss this topic further, please get in contact. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great 20th Century Geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows or just chat about everything nerdy, you can email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. That's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Or find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just search for 20th Century Geek. If you would like to support the show, please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. It raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast. If you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wishlist. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget, we love secondhand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.